Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The man who went to sea to hunt whales is the topic of our second visit with Michael Dyer, the senior historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. The Whaling Museum reveals the lives of the largest mammals on Earth. The museum's social history collection shares the monumental stories of those who spent their human lives whaling at sea between the New England coast and halfway around the world, as well as the lives of their families who yearned for their return. The museum explains how the seamen lived at sea, who they were, as well as who the captains and owners of the sailing vessels were, and all of those in between. It also explains the economics of the whale oil that lit and lubricated the Industrial Revolution. In this series on New England whaling with Mike Dyer, recorded on September 2nd, 2016, in part one, he describes the whales and how they were killed. In this program, part two of our visit with Mike Dyer, we began when he described the lives of the men who went to sea to hunt the whales. Who were the people? Well, the officers were generally uh, New New England men. Later on in the history of the fishery, very often the officers were uh, were Cape Verdeans or Azorean, Portuguese Islanders, people who uh, who sh- had shipped on uh, on a passing whaler and actually moved, lived, settled in New Bedford and pursued their lives in whaling. Uh, but the officers were generally New England guys um, or, or New York uh, New York guys, um, people experienced in the maritime culture and a maritime life. The other guys in the boat could be anybody, could be anybody. So a farmer from Vermont, farmer from New Hampshire, could be uh, a drunkard off the streets of Boston, it could be a, uh, a skilled blacksmith from Scranton, Pennsylvania, it could be anybody. Man who needed work. Yes, or who wanted it, just felt like going whaling. Uh, if you were strong and healthy and you wanted to do something different, uh, as, as one of my uh, mentors at Mystic Seaport put it, tired of looking at the backside of a mule, uh, you could ship to New Bedford, you could uh, take the train, take the cars as they called it, uh, and, and come to New Bedford and say, I want a job. Uh, you could go into Boston, you could go to New York, you could go to Baltimore, Philadelphia, and get shipped at a shipping agent. Uh, and, and a lot of guys, you know, a lot of people, there were, the, the, there were ups and downs in the American economy. I mean, there really were. And there, and in the, in the 1830s, the uh, mid-1830s and late-1830s, the economy was iffy. And there were uh, a lot of uh, young men were, were uh, looking for work. I mean, Herman Melville, for instance, was a school teacher, you know, an out-of-work school teacher. And, uh, you know, I can't think of anything today other than perhaps the military where any young man can go and get a job. And in the whale fishery, uh, and in the maritime trade, but in the whale fishery in particular, all you had to be was strong and healthy. And the healthy part, you know, you know 
sometimes that you didn't have to be healthy. But um, they didn't want drunkards and they didn't want criminals. But very often drunkards and criminals wound up on board. Um, Why was that? Because they, they'll take anybody. I mean, it's you know, if you're strong and you turn up and you, you're willing to work, um, they'll ship you. And, uh, and off you go. And we'll betide you if you cause trouble uh, because it's a really miserable life on, uh, on shipboard and the master of the, of the ship is uh, answerable to no one. He's armed very often. Uh, the first mate is also armed and is answerable to no one but the master. A master on shipboard is, uh, is a tyrant or can be, uh, and it depends on the character of the man as to how they're going to treat their crew. What are some of the aspects of the good treatment versus maltreatment? Food, generally. Um, a, fair, a good, fair master will make certain that the crew is, uh, gets plenty of meat and plenty of fresh water and fresh vegetables and fruits at every opportunity. A bad master um, will take the owner's uh, instructions to the nth degree, and that is uh, one of the most expensive things in outfitting a, a ship for a whaler for a long voyage is, is pork and beef. So that's very expensive, uh, salt pork and salt beef. And, and uh, so, if you cut back the meat ration for the men, um, you're saving the owners some money. The flip side of that is if you cut back the meat ration for the men, the men get very unhappy and, uh, and they don't work very hard and sometimes mutinies occur. Uh, some work stoppages were, all, uh, were common. Um, but you know, there, were, uh, there were plenty of happy ships and there were uh, plenty of uh, you know, bully masters. And uh, so, it, um, it depends, but no matter what, uh, bad behavior resulted in a bad result for the crew very, very often. For example? Uh, fighting, for instance. Um, on shipboard, uh, you could be flogged. You could be tied up by your thumbs in the rigging. Uh, you could be put in irons. Uh, and in extreme cases, you could be put in the run and the run is a cubbyhole in the stern of the vessel under the cabin. Uh, it's dark, it's airless, uh, and if you're put in the run, it's like you're being put in a dungeon. Uh, and so, um, if, there's, if there's fighting, if there's violence, if there is uh, uh, vandalism to the ship, for instance, uh, then refusal, refusal to, uh, to obey uh, orders, Another real indicator of a poorly run ship is when the master himself has to speak to the crew. The master speaks to the first mate. The first mate in his watch speaks to the crew. Most of the time, the first mate instructs the second mate who speaks to the crew. So there is a, uh, there is a chain of command and a chain of communication. And if a captain is talking to the crew, that means that he has no confidence in his officers. And if he has no confidence in his officers, the crew have no confidence in any of them. And so this is a, this is a bad sign. And uh, whalers, 
the men would just desert at every opportunity. So they would land, you know, at uh, you know, say they land at, at Cape Verde or land, uh, you know, at uh, you know, make port in in, uh, in in St. Catharines or Valparaiso, Chile, or uh, or pay to Peru or or somewhere somewhere in the you know Western Australia. You know, they make land. Fall Western Australia the crew just they just run away they just run off because they don't they're not going to work on a bad ship. In many cases, the crew members shipped so that they could run off, so that they could go have an adventure. Um, and uh, you know, the life at sea, you know, was a it was a maritime culture. America was a maritime culture uh, before the Civil War, before the before the transcontinental railroad. And it's completely, you know, we, it's almost completely alien to us today. Before we get into that, yeah. the, the nature of the culture, the life of the crew, the working crew that actually captured the whales. Um, you mentioned uh, pork and beef, salted, being one of the most expensive things. But yes. Where did the fresh water come from? The fresh water was, <clears throat> was stowed in casks right here in New Bedford, outward bound. So, uh, there was a uh, there was a freshwater pond, and uh, the pond itself is still there, up uh, next to Warm Sutter Mills. Uh, but there was a freshwater pond, and the water would be pumped into casks into a uh, into a, a water schooner, and that schooner would then uh, would then come down and either transfer the casks or pump that water into the casks on the ship. So the ship had plenty of fresh water when it was uh, sailing out outward bound. Uh, the water didn't stay fresh for very long in wooden casks. It got pretty nasty. Uh, and, you know, when you read Whaleman's journals, there's lots of comments about how bad the water is. But, potable but nasty. Yeah, potable but nasty. Marginally potable. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, among the most frequent stops of any, uh, of any uh, deep sea voyage was for firewood and fresh water. So wood and water. And that's you know that's those are the references that you see in logbooks and journals you know, and so these people were coming into contact with, with animals, with plants, with human beings, uh, everywhere, everywhere, all over the world, and uh, whether they wanted to come into contact with them or not, they were going ashore to cut firewood, and to uh, to get fresh water, and that meant you know exploring the islands, that meant um, you know encountering all kinds of people. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with uh, Mike Dyer, who's the senior maritime historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and you're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Um, Mike, who were the people who made up the crew, uh, perhaps beginning with the uh, six men who went out on the, uh, the boats to capture the whales? So you've got six guys on the boat. Five of them have their back rowing backwards. So they have their back to whatever's going on in the front of the boat. One guy, the most experienced whaleman on board, generally an officer, first mate, second mate, third mate, or the master himself, was the boat header. And he had the steering oar. He was in the stern of the boat looking forward. He's the guy who sees what's going on. And he gives the instructions to the other five. Your second most experienced whaleman was the harpooner, and uh, there were there were uh, four four other crewmen on board, 
uh, one of whom uh, took care of the line as it came out of the tubs, and uh, and then the other two um, were, were were there to assist to bail water out of the boat should need be, to assist in hauling on the line uh, if you know when the harpoons were fast, but the but you know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So when a full rig ship is cruising around on the western grounds, which is you know a thousand square miles of open ocean uh, west of the Azores, ha prime habitat for sperm whales. So a whale, a whaler on the grounds will will sail out to a, a place where experience has taught sperm whales are to be found. When you say they will sail out there, yes, uh, they go in a larger boat, or they go in the thirty-foot boat that we're describing. Oh, no, no, the um, you know the ship itself, the full rig ship, three masts, um, like these paintings on the walls that you see here. Uh, you can always tell a whaler in a painting because it has the small boats hanging on davits uh, off the side of the ship, so you can see you know that's a full rig ship there, the uh, the the twilight outward bound out of New Bedford Harbor. And, um, and she has three whaleboats hanging on davits off the side. And so the, the ship itself has 35 crew members on board, maybe three or four whaleboats. And then they you know, set off. They're on, you know, the master is under instructions from the managing agent that he is to cruise, uh, he's to cruise for sperm whales for uh, for a month on the western grounds uh, before proceeding uh, to uh, south and around uh, the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean. Uh, so, to take an example. And so that's what he does. The, the vessel is outfitted, it's got all of its pork, all of its beef, it has all of its sails, all of its spare rigging, all of its uh, fresh water, uh, the, the crew is on board, uh, they have you know, all of their foodstuffs, they have all of their uh, all of their whale craft that they need to do their jobs. They have empty casks that have been broken down and put into bundles, and they're all stowed in the in the forward part of the ship. Ship's all outfitted. Sails out of New Bedford or Nantucket or New London. We happen to be in New Bedford, so she sails down the Cushnet River, out Buzzards Bay. And, uh, and out into the Atlantic Ocean to cruise. For How long does it take to get to uh, the west of the Azores? To get to the Azores is about, it's, uh, about two weeks uh, sail from here. How long did the trips last? Well, a plum pudding voyage could last a year. Uh, a, in the 18th century, uh, whaling started off seasonally. So it would be Three, four to six month voyages into the into the into the Atlantic Ocean. By the 1850s, uh, voyages could take four years, uh, and there are many that went longer than that. That was because they would not fill up with 2,300 barrels of oil. No, it was largely at the uh, at the instructions of the of the owner. So the the managers of the ship, the agents were projecting the market and they were anticipating how whale oil, whale bone or sperm oil or the candle trade would go. 
And so they uh, would send out ships like uh, in here in New Bedford, very often the way it worked was uh, an, an agent would own a couple of vessels, one of which he'd send out right whaling uh, for uh, two years. Uh, and then he might send out a sperm whaler for four years. And, and then they, as these vessels returned, they kept him a constant uh, stock of, of uh, product was coming in. Um, additionally, in the New Bedford Port District, the New Bedford Port District is made up of Wareham, Marion, Mattapoisett, Fairhaven, New Bedford, Dartmouth, and Westport. Westport was a sperm whaling town. They sent out short sperm whaling voyages. They specialized in short sperm whaling voyages to the Caribbean. Uh, and to the North Atlantic, and uh, and so their owners were uh, were going out and coming back relatively quickly, and keeping a lot of sperm oil in the market. Uh, New Bedford whaling agents built their fortunes on right whales, on whale oil. Um, you know these these whaling agents in New Bedford were very very savvy guys. They they were engaged in right whaling, and so they would uh, their ships would go out. They'd, they'd come back with you know thousands of barrels of whale oil, and then while that was going on, they'd send out a sperm whaler or two sperm whalers, and the sperm whalers would be gone for a longer period of time. When they come back, the right whalers have already been out and back again, and so there's this constant um, uh, supply of oil and. Uh, and that's that's how the, that's how they managed. That's how they made their millions, I and mean, they made fortunes doing this stuff. Staying with the life of the crewmen, what their life was like on the ship when they weren't going after the whales. Oh, some men shipped as uh, green hands, some shipped as ordinary seamen, and some shipped as able seamen. And then there were the craftsmen. And so, you know, while on the grounds or while making a passage uh, from uh, one whaling ground to another. Uh, in, uh, in the absence of whales, uh, men were on the lookout. So, uh, out of every watch, um, crew stood. You know, the crew would rotate through two hours uh, of steering the ship and two hours at the masthead looking out for whales. And they would just constantly uh, stand the stand the lookout from dawn till sundown. Would they sail at night? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Um, would they sail in bad weather? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're in the open you know, ocean. <laughs> they're nowhere near land. I mean, these guys are, you know, once they determine a cruising ground, they just cruise back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you could see it on the charts. You know, it's the huge difference between a clipper ship and a whaler. So the clipper were... ship has a straight line from New York to Liverpool or from Liverpool to Melbourne, whereas a whaler gets halfway across the Atlantic Ocean and then it zigzags back and forth, 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 day after day. And they knew where the whaling grounds were? Yes. So while the, so, you know, the, while the watches, some of the members of the watch are on lookout, some members of the watch are, are steering the ship, uh, the rest of them are sh engaged in ship's duty. And an able-bodied seaman for an able seaman Ship's duty was, was anything to do with the rigging uh, above decks. And so an able seaman uh, was a master of, of, uh, of 
uh, rigging, um, sail work, anything to do with, uh, with repairing sails, um, setting up the rigging, um, setting up all the, all the blocks and tackles that, that need to be set in place, um, setting sail, taking in sail, you know, many of, the, uh, many of the real complex professional skills that had to happen uh, in the rigging above deck. An ordinary seaman was learning that stuff. So an ordinary seaman could hand, reef, and steer. Uh, and uh, that means he could, he could go aloft, he could handle a sail, he could take in, he could, uh, he could take in the sail and, and, uh, and, and reef a sail, and he could steer a ship. And a green hand had none of those skills. So a green hand was shipped with no expectation of having any knowledge whatsoever. So they shipped largely uh, to pull an oar. And if they learned something in the process, that's great. You know, good for them. It was in many ways, you know, the way the pay structure was set up, you were paid by the actual production of the ship. So that's how you were paid, and it behooved you to uh, to do a good job because if you uh, if you took your work seriously, you worked as a team member, you kept your eye peeled and spotted whales, you didn't cause any trouble, uh, you didn't smoke a lot of tobacco, uh, you know, you you, uh, you you didn't buy too many clothes uh, from the slop chest, uh, you know, you you could stand a good chance of helping that ship fill up and go home you know and a, and a, a 300 ton ship might take 2300 barrels of sperm oil uh, in, a, in a two year cruise and so uh, you know a really good uh, conscientious young guy um, would uh, would keep his mouth shut <laughs> he would uh, he would learn the trade he would pull his oar um, he uh, and, and he would and he would learn you know he would learn seamanship you know he'd learn to act and, uh, and and behave like a sailor and more to the point in the whale fishery like a whaleman. Well, Michael Dyer, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment in your life that? Uh, changed the course or the path, gave you a plan by which you've chosen to live? Hmm. Well, probably I would have to say reading Moby Dick when I was 19. That probably set me uh, on, uh, as you say here, you know, a path of curiosity. Uh, there's no cure for curiosity, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, that got me interested in Yankee whaling enough pay attention to it. And as I paid attention to Yankee whaling and maritime history, I realized how little I knew. And then the more I thought about that, the more I, I realized how little I was taught. And the fact that maritime history is not taught in American schools. We don't learn maritime history. We don't learn anything about maritime history. Uh, we certainly don't know anything about whaling history, but that's another question. That I'm not, uh, not going to necessarily take anybody to task for that. But antebellum America as a maritime nation is an indisputable fact. Really, the only uh, systematic study of maritime history uh, takes place in museums, in you know, in 
1990 or the part of the 1990s when I was being, getting my career, it was the only place really that it took place was in museums. And so I took internships at whaling museums and Mystic Seaport Museum and the Kendall Whaling Museum in Sheridan, Massachusetts and, and just became absolutely fascinated with the stuff. You know, my, uh, my wife runs a historical society in Westport, Massachusetts and she and I were chatting a bit about the output of culture that comes out of whaling. I mean, the paintings, the poetry, the writings, the literature, the scrimshaw, fine art, uh, folk art, uh, lore, uh, craftsmanship of shipbuilding, uh, world explorations, cartography. Uh, it, it's a bottomless subject, and uh, there's a, a tremendous amount to learn. Uh, and it's ongoing. I mean, there were 15,000 American whaling voyages, and, and anything that you could conceive of in the human uh, experience happened on those voyages. And uh, you know, we have the finest collection of, of Yankee whaling uh, materials anywhere in the world here at the Whaling Museum. And so I'm just constantly absorbed. You know, it, it's a uh, you know, it's really kind of a selfish thing in a way, but uh, but it's not because I, I, I talk to people like you. And, and uh, write books and articles and, and, and talk to constituents and visitors all the time. So it's a good way to spend a life. And Scrimshaw is the artwork done on the bones of the whale by the whalers as they're at sea. Yeah, it's done, at, yeah, it's done with products obtained uh, in the hunt at sea by a whaleman. That's right. And uh, Mike Dyer, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? <laughs> well, I want to finish the book, The Art of the Yankee Whale Hunt. I want to get that done and get that published. So uh, that's anticipated to be published uh, in the spring of 2017. Uh, as far as professionally, as far as uh, professionally, I, I'd like to work a bit more on the business of whaling and work more on, uh, you know, do a good exhibition in a, on the, the really the untold part of the Yankee whaling story, which is what happened after the voyages were finished. All that product, where did it go? Who bought it? How did it get to market? How was it processed? Uh, how was it used? Where was it used? Uh, and uh, I want to know answers to that. So my whaling career is not done yet, um, and there's still significant uh, portions of the Appalachian Trail that I need to walk on. So, And before we close, uh, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? If you have to read one book, it would be Charles Melville Scammon's The Marine Mammals of the Northwestern Coast of North America. And Dover published a reprint edition of that book. And you can it's available in paperback through Dover Publications. Uh, the book itself was published in San Francisco in 1874. Uh, the artwork is superb. The natural history is rock solid. The, analysis of Yankee whaling as it is taking place at the time uh, is can't be beat. The, it's probably the single finest book written on the history of Yankee whaling. Michael Dyer, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. My pleasure, Barry. Thanks for having me. 
This has been part two of our series on whaling with Michael Dyer, the senior historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. The book Mike Dyer recommends is Marine Mammals of the Northwestern Coast of North America by Charles Melville Scammon. These interviews were recorded on September 2, 2016 at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.